You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater, the podcast that digs into the onstage works we love to make the offstage change we need. After all, that is Why We Theater. Today, we welcome playwright Jonathan Payne to talk about Rattlestick Theater Company's production of his play, Addressless, A Walk in Our Shoes, a play that digs into the issue of homelessness. The new work was both virtual and interactive. And let me just say, I am generally suspect of a virtual theater production and always suspect of a virtual interactive theater production. But this play changed that. Addressless proved to be a powerful experience about a cause near to my heart. Along with Hungarian director Martin Boros, Jonathan illustrated and explored the plight of those experiencing homelessness through three carefully curated and delicately performed roles. There's Wallace, a middle-aged single father living unhoused with his son. Lewis, a veteran in his, let's say, 30s or 40s. And Josie, a non-binary adolescent or young 20-something. All three live unhoused. The play is structured as a, quote, game in which all three characters try to earn $1,500 in three months' time in order to qualify for their own apartment in New York City. The audience is divided into three groups, one per character, and weigh in on decisions that Wallace, Lewis, and Josie have to make as they live unhoused from December through February. And we have a social worker as our guide. By March 1st, Each of them has to have $1,500 or they don't qualify for housing. Each of the three months, December, January, February, they have three options. One, sleep on the streets, which of course will cost them no money, but makes it difficult to earn money since sleeping on the street and the consequences to your mental health and physical exhaustion make it difficult to hold down a job. Option two, they can sleep in a shelter and better allow them to hold down a job but that also comes with some safety and comfort risks. Or three, crash on a friend's couch, which makes them able to earn money as well, but comes with its own stresses. While it may seem obvious to choose the option that gives you the potential to earn the most money, the catch is that there are health points involved because each of these options takes a toll on your health and therefore years off your life. You start with 20 health points, but dip below a certain threshold and it won't matter if you get the $1,500. 
Now, because the audience helps these three people make their decisions, the subsequent results change every performance, which means audiences see different scenes play out each performance. There are dozens of permutations of the show, and some of the richest parts of the experience are the discussions that precede the decision-making. The Choose Your Own Path lifted the tone of the play and truthfully did make it a little fun. And the interaction made the play more impactful and deep without being overwhelmingly heavy. But that's why when Lewis, Josie, or Wallace was dealt a blow, it hit even harder. I hope another iteration or production of Address List will be available soon, either virtually or in person. For now, let's hear from experts Shams DeBaron, a.k.a. The Homeless Hero, who was first called in as a script consultant and then played Wallace, as well as Kevin Ryan of Covenant House International and playwright Jonathan Payne. Jonathan Payne, thank you so much for being here today. I cannot wait to talk to you about this incredible play you have written. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. (laughs) Happy to be here. Saying it's a play, it, it really was an experience. And part of that is because it ended up in the virtual format, which I definitely want to talk to you about. But what inspired the idea for Address List to begin with? And what made you put pen to paper? Hmm. I guess there's two answers to that. I I think the first part is the sort of genesis of the project. It started in Hungary uh, by a group of social workers who had invented a form of uh, a a live game that people could play. And they presented it to the theater company, Stereo Act, with the hope that they could collaborate on the subject of homelessness. Um, And so that's where the play sparked. Um, And then given to how Stereo Act functions, uh, they're a specialized theater that uh, uses a lot of, uh, you know, verbatim type stuff, interview stuff under that umbrella. They pulled in specialists and experts in in the world of homelessness and uh, created this play, The Dressless. So what was the conceit why make this play a game, a choose-your-own-path interactive format? It's a great question because uh, also in production, a lot of people who came to see the show, you know, some had trouble swallowing that idea that it was a game. And I, and, and I think a lot of that is uh, a game immediately puts you in a form of action, I guess. You have a goal, you are pursuing something. And I think the collaborative aspects of working with the actors or characters in the piece, helping them or supporting them towards a goal of money for housing, there's an altruism to that. There's a activism to that. People are using their their experiences or what they know of the world to try and adapt into this this game sphere. The trick is not to get so hung up in the idea that it's a game. And the joy is seeing people root for their characters, you know, get upset, you know, when they don't get money or, you know, something bad happens to their character. There's a an exciting sort of, we're on your side and we're trying to help you. 
That's right. Game aspect feeds that. Yeah. I think that so often the word game can seem trivial because we so associate it with fun and games or children's games. But the way you just described it is exactly precise because it's a game in the sense that there is a goal, that there is something to achieve and you are taking steps that change every time the play happens in order to get to that goal or to miss that goal. So you have these three characters, Lewis, Wallace, and Josie, who are all trying to make $1,500 to get that deposit on this affordable housing. And what I thought was brilliant is you have these health points so that there's risk always involved. The reason I think it succeeded for me sitting at home so profoundly was that it felt like it was made to be virtual. So much virtual theater these days, it happens on a stage and then we just filmed it, right? But this really <laughs> used the medium. So how similar is the virtual interactive version we got to the original in person that you wrote? Mm. It's it's interesting. I had to keep being reminded that it was going to be in the virtual sphere. You know, uh, you know, a lot of the writing was, you know, Martin would have to say, Jonathan, it's going to be in a virtual sphere. We have to think about this more visually, and it wasn't too big of a shift. Um, I think the game elements is what lended well to the online portion of the, of the experience. Generally, what would happen in a live version is audiences would be in their groups behind their character. Um, and, you know, they would still vote or, you know, try to make help support make decisions for their characters. The big shift is yeah, that people are in the comfort of their homes. Martin had the chance to see the show fully realized in front of an audience. And that was what was exciting to me was to be in that space and watch all these interactions and see the actors put on different bits of clothes and transform in a sense. And then we shifted into the Zoom sphere. I think all of that magic is on uh, Martin and his vision and the Zoom managers that were involved and a lot of the online techniques and technicians that really sort of helped lift the game. Right. When I was watching it virtually, it was really exciting when we were separated in our groups, you get separated into breakout rooms. And mm -hmm. my avatar was Lewis, who was experiencing homelessness after being a veteran, or he is a mm -hmm. veteran after having served. And he would present us with a choice. And it was so interesting that pretty immediately we shifted into a discussion space. You know, he would ask to take a poll and we would raise our hands, but soon enough, everybody was shouting out reasons why and asking questions. Well, what if you ask them to do this? Can you do it this way? And he was like, yeah. it is a very yes or no question. Like, <laughs> you know, right. and our impulse was always to try and find the loophole, try and find, you know, some other way, but it really was a discussion -based based experience. Was that the same in the in-person production? I mean, the discussions were the same. I think that was what was really exciting to me in the piece was to actually hear all the conversations and to hear people's perspectives and the, you know, the pushback that the actors give. I think that's the real 
bread and butter of the piece. Absolutely. In addition to your playwriting, as you say, you also have a day job working at Community Access. I'm curious how you came to create each of these three avatars, Lewis, Wallace, and Josie. Obviously, we don't have to name names, but did those come from people you've met? Did that come from your imagination? How did we get those three characters? Uh, The Hungarian version had their own characters, and I think when we stepped into the space and tried to create the New York version, we tried to think about some of the unfortunate stories that you hear in New York. Um, And so the veteran coming home became a big one. LGBTQ individual became another in Josie. And then thinking about uh, a parent, I mean, Shams is a, a parent who's in the play, It's uh, amazing to think about some of the stories he shared with us just in terms of uh, raising his son while being uh, housing insecure. I think all of those sort of jumped forward to us and became the direction of the three characters that we were going to take part of. And we also thought about race and representation. I I think that was something uh, we really wanted to highlight. We (laughs) wanted the play to look like like New York. There was a lot of uh, discussion about the actors that we put into the play, Mm. especially for bit parts, because there's a lot of tinier, small parts. Which, come to mention, I was reading through the digital program, which we will put a link to in the show notes, and realized there were so many bit characters that I did not encounter in the version of the play that I saw, because we chose different things, or there were different moments, which really just blew me away with how big the script and how big the play that you had to write is because you create all of these scenarios. For those who are listening and and weren't able to see the show, every character comes to multiple crossroads the same way you would in a game. And they have to make a choice. And one choice will take them one way and one choice will take them another. And these different outcomes bring different interactions with different people and then inform the next scene that may or may not pop up. So I was part of Lewis's group and I remember towards the end of the game, he had just gotten a job and he had a bad back and he had to make a decision about whether to miss work. And because it was so early in his employment, missing work to get treatment or to take time off to rest and get healthy would cost him his job. But going back to work would cost him his health. And so there are these moments that might seem like an obvious choice and yet they're not. You know, another one is when Wallace, who um, Shams played, and we're gonna welcome Shams into the conversation in a little bit, Wallace meets someone romantically and has to decide whether to spend some of his money on a hotel for one night to celebrate their one month anniversary or not. And it was interesting how some people were like, one month? That's not anything. And don't waste your money. And other people were like, ooh, but a hotel might come with a shower. And the impulse to invalidate that one month relationship that could be really significant and really important, again, to mental, emotional, spiritual health. 
um, mm-hmm. or the risk factor that Josie encounters when she's, you know, just sitting on a park bench and someone says, I'll give you 20 bucks if I can take your picture for my portfolio sitting right here. But then that quickly escalates to, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you come with me to another place and I take your picture. And these questions of well-being and money and the money that will ultimately lead to a more secure well-being the conflict is so strong. Like, how did you construct these moments? How did you pinpoint the conflicts and the situations that would give us those decisions and even breaks to make? Mm. The first part is I, I can't carry all of the, the accolades. Um, so the original script, there were certain scenes that we repeated but updated to a New York version. Mm-hmm. But the important thing was understanding the relationship of money and your health, in a sense. A lot of the decision points that popped up was, you know, me asking myself or of the situation, in what ways can this person's health be affected? And in what way can the money be affected? And, you know, the, the goal is to earn enough money. And so you're presented with decisions that can get in the way of that. And I sort of feel like my experience as a social worker introduced me to this idea of, you know, we all think that we have a simple answer to this situation. You know, why don't you just get a job or, you know, why aren't you staying in the shelter instead of being on, you know, the train? All these sort of simplistic answers were uh, really revelatory to me once I stepped into the social work sphere and was actually sitting with people and talking about their experiences and understanding the complications of choices. Um, one of the uh, most shocking things to me was there was an individual when I was working in, hus- in, in housing and she had just gotten housing, but she didn't have a job. She was hoping to get a job. She had applied for stuff like Medicaid. She applied for food stamps. And all of that was in this nebulous sphere of waiting. Um, So, you know, she had no money. She had a roof over her head. But, you know, there was no way to help with eating or any of the other stuff. And, you know, uh, in the neighborhood, a man comes up and says, hey, you know, I got these sneakers, you know, you want sneakers like these, you know? And she's like, yeah, I'd love to have sneakers like these. And he's like, well, you know, all you have to do is hold on to this, you know, a question mark drug of some sort and, you know, just leave it in your apartment. You don't need to sell it or anything. I'll come and get it later. And so this person began to shower her with things just for the service of holding on to. She didn't have to sell. All she had to do was hold on to the stuff. Right. And all her needs were being met in that sense. Hmm. The question is, how could you get involved with a dealer? Right. And that's how. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's so what you and, and your director, Martin, were able to do in weaving these risks and these stakes and the needs while also knowing that we were going to be stopping and starting. The moments of decision and discussing those moments and what will be the surprise or what will happen in those moments uh, served as a fuel in a sense. Of course. (laughs) The timer would run out and, you know, the the staff would be like, you know, we need to, we need to hurry these conversations up. And, you know, so there's a lot of 
pressure on the actors in a sense. But I think those discussions and uh, the results of those discussions are sort of the gas to the piece. Yeah. Were there other characters ever in mind? Were there ever more than three? Or are there scenes that were cut that you think demonstrate an aspect of housing insecurity that we weren't able to see that you want people to know about? This play took place during a pandemic and homelessness became a very big issue within that, as Shams can attest to. Um, so we tried to have a bit about the pandemic and we wrote a whole section about the characters being in the, in the involved in the pandemic and how they're navigating that situation. Right. Uh, but the the play just seemed amazingly too long. It's already two hours, so <laughs> um, so we had to cut that. Right. You mentioned Shams, and we're going to bring him in in a moment, but there were four characters in this play. Two of them were played in the production that I saw for Rattlestick. Two of them were played by professional actors, and two were people who have had these roles in real life. Sham um, did not perform his own story, but he did perform a story of housing insecurity. And then Hope Beaver played the role of the social worker and uh, Hope is a social worker. So I'm curious, what was that choice to have a mix of two people who are professional actors in the show and two people who come from the weir real world of it? Once again, that came from the Hungarian version. So um, that was sort of an element of what Stereo Act does. And I, as the playwright, of course, was brought into this experience and understood the, the importance of that to have, uh, I guess, the sort of truth in the room, people that understand the situation of homelessness and could be strong representatives of that who also can serve as advisors. My experience is sort of uh, post-homelessness. Uh, I was working in housing with people who had finally gotten a home, but to actually have other people bring their experience into the space was uh, overly helpful and adds a, a depth and a strength to the piece. And I, I think there's something very powerful about someone who isn't polished and, you know, I went to Juilliard and, you know, <laughs> I, I know where my light is and, you know, I could give one heck of a soliloquy. Right. <laughs> um, there's such a power in the truth of that situation. 100%. And it's exciting to see. No, it was exciting for me. And, and speaking of the experts who have, you know, worked through this on the advocacy side, worked through this on the side of their own personal experience, I want to bring in our other guests for today, including one of those who was an actor in the productions. Shams DeBaron is not an actor by trade, but he did perform the role of Wallace in Addressless. Having experienced homelessness during his childhood and adult years, Shams is an advocate for unhoused people in New York City, known by his moniker, The Homeless Hero. The story he portrayed in Addressless was not his own, but he is here today as a part of the production and to give voice to those experiencing or who have experienced homelessness. Welcome, Shams. Hello, how's everything? Good to, good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. We also have Kevin Ryan, who is the president and CEO of Covenant House International, a position he's held since 2009. 
Full disclosure, Covenant House is an organization I support and have actively supported through the annual Stage and Screen Sleepout, and I have donated to them over the past four years. Covenant House is an organization that fights youth homelessness. In addition to data research and advocacy, Covenant House operates shelters around the world, including in New York City. Under Kevin's leadership, Covenant House has experienced its largest period of expansion, renovation, and renewal in the organization's history. Prior to his current position, Kevin served as an attorney advocate at Covenant House. He has served as the commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Human Services and as an advisor on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. He is now in his final year serving Covenant House, and I am so excited to get to speak to him in this capacity. Kevin, welcome to you. I'm so excited that we get to have this conversation like this. Thanks, Ruthie. Thanks for having me. It's a real treat. It's my absolute pleasure. Like I was telling Jonathan before we began recording, this is a cause that is near and dear to my heart, thanks to Covenant House. And I was so excited to see a show that really captured, at least from my perspective, of course, I am grateful to be secure in my housing, but from my Covenant House experiences, talking to youth who have experienced this, it just felt spot on to me. And I remember at my very first sleep out, what struck me honestly was how little separated me from the youth that I met at Covenant House. I remember at the time at my first sleep out, one teen said that she and her mother got into a massive fight and her mom locked her out of the house. And I've been in so many blowouts with my own mom. If she's listening, she she's going to laugh right now. But I've been in so many blowouts with her. And she did not lock me out of the house. Even if I ran out of the house because I couldn't deal with it. It's like the door was unlocked when I came back. And this play just speaks to those slight differences and the misconceptions around how people become unhoused. And I know that each of you have stories around this. So... Kevin, I actually wanted to start with you. Did you realize before starting at Covenant House the few differences that really separate us? Like what was your perception and what did you learn was the reality? Well, I started at Covenant House, which provides emergency housing and longer term apartment style living for young people across 33 cities and six countries. 30 years ago. So I was a lot thinner, had hair. (laughs) uh, And, um, you know, I was driving uh, through the Amtrak tunnel in New York, right, taking the train. And I learned later that week, there were young people who were living inside that tunnel. And it had never occurred to me as a young person, when we were going into the city to go to a baseball game or go to a Broadway show or see the tree get lit up, that there were young people my age who weren't surrounded by a circle of support and were trying to figure out how to stay alive. And Covenant House was filled back then with young people who had lots and lots of different stories. What I learned early on is that the least interesting thing about all those young people was homelessness. They're Mm -hmm. students and artists and actors and athletes and baristas and apprentices. And every one of them is someone's son or daughter. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they have dreams that are just as big as everybody else's dreams, but they've had less opportunity 
and many of them have experienced trauma, either trauma that pushed them to the streets or trauma that they faced on the streets or a combination of both. And then there's a special you know, subset of young people who feel broken because they got told over and over and over again there was something wrong with them, that, that they were wired the wrong way. This is especially true for LGBTQ young people who get told that they're not enough, that their heart loves in the wrong direction. And so they don't mm. just feel broken, they feel brokenhearted and they, and they think about the horizon as being, okay, where am I eating tomorrow? Where am I sleeping safely? They're not thinking about mm. college. They're not thinking about a family life. The world just narrows dramatically. And our great privilege at Covenant House is to celebrate every one of those young people for just who they are, to stop being that symphony of voices, you know, the different timbers and pitches and resonances that just meld into a single voice that tells a young person that they're broken and not enough. We get the privilege to say, you are exactly who you are supposed to be and to be yeah. oxygen for kids' dreams. And, and that's, you know, a bit sentimental, but it's also the reality of what goes on there. The most important stuff isn't the safe place to sleep and the food, though that is essential. It's getting young people to believe that there's something better out them for them and then to help them uh, to chase it. And now you guys know why I volunteer with Covenant House. <laughs> now you guys know. I think there is a stigma and a misconception that anyone who becomes homeless did it to themselves kind of thing. Um, and this is something that I really, really want to counter. So I'm wondering if you can share a couple of ways that some of the youth have come to Covenant House. I mean, many young people age out of the foster care system and they don't find a forever family. Their birth families were taken away from them and they find themselves on the streets. That's not just true in New York, that's true in the Montrose section of Houston, it's true in LA, it's true in Vancouver, it's true in Toronto. You pick the city and you will find young people in North America who age out of foster care and they're on their own. In fact, some of these young people after spending more than a decade in foster care end up with their stuff in a black hefty bag um, and a letter saying, thank you for your participation in the program and good luck to you. They're just trying to find their way in the world. None of those young people did anything to deserve that. And the fact that the government, whether it's in Canada or the United States or Mexico, expends hundreds of millions of dollars in this broken system that takes children away from their families and then severs parental rights and leaves those kids on this hamster wheel of broken placements, residential treatment centers, psychiatric hospitals, foster homes, group homes, and then you know puts them out when they turn 18 or 19 or 20 mm -hmm. um, is just such a scandal. And the fact that so many young people face homelessness is not inevitable, it's quite the opposite. You know, it's a political choice. This is simply a matter of our values and priorities. We don't have to live in a world where there are folks who face homelessness. These, these young people at Covenant House face homelessness because we live in a context where we haven't made it a priority to eliminate homelessness among young mm -hmm. people. There are also young people who, um, because of family conflict or because of jugulating poverty, find themselves kicked out or ejected. As I said, there are young people who discover 
you know, as they grow, whether it's in, you know, prepubescence or in adolescence, that their heart tacks in one direction and their family expects them to love in a different way. And when they come out, they get evicted to the streets. There are young women who become pregnant and their families also evict them to the streets. There are lots of reasons that young people find themselves without an inspiring circle of love around them and a safe place to sleep. And I can tell you that the vast majority of those young people feel absolutely powerless in those circumstances. They're, mm. they're just trying to find their way forward. Yeah. And of course, it's not only youth who can experience housing insecurity. This happens to people of all ages. For some number reference, according to the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, they did a 2020 point in time count, which is not about looking at an entire year. It's looking at one night in 2020. And this happened to be a night in January 2020 before the pandemic. So this number mm. is before that. And on, a, on that single night that the count was taken, approximately 580,000 people of all ages were experiencing homelessness. 61% of those people were in shelters, but 39% were on the street or in abandoned buildings or in other places that are really unfit and not intended for human habitation. And I just need everyone to pause and think about that number and think about it in terms of 580,000 individuals, 580,000 of your best friend, of your sister, of your mother, because one is too many, let alone more than half a million. Shams, as someone who has experienced insecurity throughout their life, I'm wondering if you would just share a little bit of your personal story and how you came to advocacy as well. But anything you're willing to share about your own personal account with this challenge? Well, first and foremost, I was part of the foster care system since the age of two. Mm -hmm. I started experiencing homelessness at the age of 10. I went from a secure foster home. And in the beginning, I want to talk about housing insecurity. As a child growing up in the early years of foster care, I was all over the place, myself and my two brothers. So we were going from one home to another, didn't um, get the nurturing of a stable environment or a family. Some of these homes were filled with all types of people, all age groups. Mm. I learned everything long before everybody else. <laughs> it was extremely fast. And um, when we did finally make it to a stable home, uh, it, you know, the agency overseeing us, a lot of this is so reminiscent of the slave experience that it mm. always triggers that type of um, connection for me. And I looked at it like that at that young age, uh, having overseers, having people that control your life. And despite the, the good that in one case, the family, the family that I was with, despite the good that they wanted to do, there were rules that they had to follow that was instituted by the agency overseeing us. And they got to a point where they felt like we want to get them adopted because we mm -hmm. were getting older and they wanted to turn the foster home into a group home. Mm. And so they felt that would be a little difficult with us still there in that family setting. 
So they disrupted our lives. They put us on the nude and news graded us around the same way they used to do the slaves. Wow. And they said, does anyone wants to buy these kids? I'm sorry, want to adopt these kids. Right. That's how they process it as a young child. And so suffice it to say, we sabotaged those plans. And they found a way to break us up. And they placed me and a younger brother into a group home that we were very too young to be in. So at the age of 10, I started going AWOL from there and just started, you know, hanging out uh, on the train, sleeping on the train, figuring out what part of the city I could go in. And if I had to walk around, which ones were the safest? I usually found that um, in the in the white communities that I was learning <laughs> about. Yeah, um, not surprising. I tried 42nd Street, which was at that time kind of like, you know, the deuce was the only 24-hour place. So I went down there thinking, okay, it's lights. Everybody's out here. Not really, not realizing that it was a haven for pedophiles, per- perverts, and all manner of of what we just don't want our children to come across. Right. But I was up there by myself, and I learned how to survive, and 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 learned how to make sure that I didn't um, become a victim of one of these people. And it wasn't that easy, but I did that. At 12, I was permanently discharged from the agency into the streets, told to go back where I, where I came from. So I know Kevin was speaking about aging out of foster care at 18. I aged out, I guess, at 12. Huh. <laughs> and, you know, I don't get into my life in the streets and in, in, in this ascension into a life of crime. But I just put it this way. My story is the is it has made the news <laughs> i grew up in the gang era of the 70s and the crack era of the 80s so right. let your imaginations go there well yeah mm-hmm. and even just what jonathan was saying before about the woman who had um housing but no job and was trying to find a job and then someone comes along and offers you this thing for what seems like a small price of just holding on to something and and so we got the evolution of how that particular story happened. And so we can imagine, you know, when it's about survival, what happened for you? That That's the real thing. It wasn't about, you know, for some people during the crack era, it was about like status, reputation. And I was never inclined towards crime or criminal activity. That just wasn't me. The, the mm. foster parents that I did grow up with and, and had a relationship and that I considered that mom and dad, they instilled great principles and values in me. So when I was out there on my own, it was a great conflict for me. And I felt so like, I felt so at war at myself because it was like, damn, I'm doing this and don't want to do it. I was an academic star, despite everything. I was accepted to attend an elite high school through what was known as the Better Chance program, the ABC program. So I had all these great things going on, all this great potential, but a lot of that got stifled in this homeless experience. And then I became a parent. And so I transitioned out of that street life, thank God, and I began to go back into the communities that I once helped to destroy and help people and stuff like that. But the reality of not having that type of money and that type of stability and having children was a whole nother reality. And I'm kind of like 
segue into something with Convenant House. Um, I remember, you know, a lot of the my um, peers in, in the group home and in the foster home, you know, we got to a point where it was like, I, at that time, we used to call it under 21. Um, and so we were all trying to make that transition. And sometimes it, 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 it worked for some people, didn't work for others and stuff. And I never took that step. But the most, but so I was always aware of a place like Convenant House being a, a, a refuge for for mm -hmm. teens because I didn't have those safety nets and and I could imagine having the value of a safety net at such a vulnerable time in life and the 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 most horrific experience if I could think of um, and I hope I don't get emotional on this one see all of this is real for me in yeah. all of these and stuff. So we're hearing Kevin take talk your time. And take your time. Through the stuff. I'm I'm kind of reliving my own experience, but I do like to ex express this because it might be helpful to somebody else. But I remember as a parent um getting a distress call from my daughter who was pregnant and very young. And she um they had went through the system. The, regular shelter system wouldn't let her in because of her age. She had nowhere to go. And she said, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go to Convenant House. Mm. It's one thing when it's me, but it's another thing when you see your children go through this stuff. So a lot of what I do is, in, is infused by this entire life experience of where I've seen the failures of our, our systems of government and how it's been so careless on our most vulnerable population. That's right. And That's right. To end up a single adult going through this experience and still not being able to get out of it. I guess I got to a point where I said, you know what? Well, if I got another shot to live, let me live trying to do something to change those things that I see wrong. Yeah. Shams, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah, I hope everyone listening is really taking that in. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Before I ask other questions, I wanted to clarify a couple of the terms that have been going around because I don't think we should assume knowledge on anyone's part. I'm curious if one of you can describe the difference between a foster home, a group home, 
transitional housing, like is Covenant House a, a group home because there are a group of youth living there? Or what What are the differences between these things? Maybe Kevin, you're, you're able to explain the differences. Sure, well, a foster home um, typically is a family that works with a local child welfare agency and cares for children who are um, in the care and the custody of the state. And with very few exceptions, really only Guatemala uh, in our Covenant House world, the young people who come to Covenant House are not in foster care. These are young people who've left foster care. And Covenant House is a bit of a, of a gap filler between foster care, if you will, and the adult services, human services systems. Um, transitional housing, depending on the province or the city that you're in, is typically you know, a year or two years of housing while young people are developing the skills and the tools that they need in order to live independently. I mean, I remember being 18 years old and being on my own and, and you know, I was nowhere near ready to do that. I understand some people are, a lot of people aren't. That's right. And so it's about budgeting and doing laundry and groceries and cleaning and, you know, 101. Paying the um, bill on time. Exactly. Paying the bill on time. Um, opening a checkbook, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, I had no idea how to do that when I was 18 years old. Um, so that and, and Covenant House essentially is a continuum. So the door is always open. 24 7 as long as there is room and sometimes in cities like new orleans even when there isn't room we let young people in but in other cities over time that's become much more regulated so you'll find many fewer covenant houses have young people sleeping on um, the floor because all the beds are taken that used to be true 30 years ago it's just not common now at all Mm. and young people come in it's emergency shelter and then depending on the city and what we're doing there is a continuum of housing. There might be that one to two year transitional living program. There might be specialized housing for young women who are pregnant or parenting in New York for young dads who are parenting. There might be, and there are in Atlanta and uh, in Tegucigalpa, Honduras and Toronto and New York, specialized homes for survivors of human trafficking. These Mm -hmm. are young people who are often cooperating with prosecutors against the gangs or cartels or the individuals who you know essentially bullied them and exploited them usually for sexual purposes but sometimes for labor purposes in california there's a lot of labor exploitation um, forcing young people to work in the fields we try very much to be a bridge because the journey from poverty and and homelessness and hunger and a lack of health care um, you know, is is the journey that all of us are taking. It, ta- it right. takes time. And, you know, Covenant House isn't baseball. It's not like three strikes and you're out. One of my closest friends at Covenant House, former young person who was in and out of Covenant House, Alaska, nine times, mm-hmm. <laughs> nine times from the time he was, from the time he was uh, 12 years old till the time he was 20. And he became, eventually became the lightweight boxing champion of Alaska. Um, wow. But, you know, he there were lots of things that he was going through as a teenager, right, that lots of kids go through. And one of the most beautiful things, I think, about Jonathan's work and about Sham's Witness is that it brings people intimately, nearly to the face and the voice of someone who's experiencing homelessness. When you, when you describe like millions of young people or 580,000 people homeless on one day, that we choke on that. It's so overwhelming. We just right. can't process that. 
But when we hear a story of an individual, when we understand their journey and understand their dreams and their trauma, then our hearts expand. This is the great gift of art. It opens our hearts to the dignity and adventure and perspective of someone else's path. And in many ways, this is critical to creating the political will in our society to end homelessness. It won't happen with research reports. It'll happen because we all start to feel like that person's homelessness is our homelessness. That's mm -hmm. the only way it gets better. That's the only way is if we, if our empathy grows and one of the biggest challenges of the pandemic era, if you will, of these last two years is that our fear and our anxiety is growing. And whenever that happens, our empathy narrows. We right now in this conversation and in Sham's work and in Jonathan's work and in this podcast, Ruthie, you were very much on the front lines of really retaliating against the instinct that exists in our sort of cultural metabolism right now to pull inward and to, right. and to say, no, no, we are going to get through this together, together. Yeah. I'm thinking about some of the things that you're just talking about. I always wished there was a class in high school called life. Like where <laughs> is, where is the life class that tells you how to do your taxes, that tells you how to understand insurance, to that tells you how to open a bank account, that tells you how to use the post office correctly, right? Like when I was 18, I didn't have the wherewithal to know those things either. The difference between me and someone else is that I had parents who had the means to send me to college, which is kind of like a transitional phase, right? Like I'm in a dormitory, I'm independent, but I'm not without structure. I'm independent, but I'm not without supervision. And I got to learn all of those things under the guise of an institution. And that is not always what is able to happen. And one of the activities at actually the first virtual sleep out that we did was an investigation of privilege. And there were two lists and I forget, Kevin, maybe you remember what the categories are, but it was like, you know, like innate things like I was born of a certain race or a certain sexuality and things like that. Um, and then there are conditional things like I grew up in a house without abuse or I grew up in a house that was able to put food on the table. And you realize how many factors can be for or against you just for existing and being in the world that have absolutely nothing to do with any action you take? I mean, I was, I've been thinking a lot about in the last two years how some young people in this country, kids, when schools closed, went home to Wi-Fi and a safe learning place and a parent who could help them figure it out but many, many, many young people lost all connection to schools. Schools closed down, no tools, no computers, no Wi-Fi. And we are going to pay for this as a society for a generation because mm -hmm. there are, I, I, there could be millions. I don't want to be alarmist about this, but there are certainly hundreds of thousands of young people who lost two years. And those two years don't come back. They don't. That's right. Mm. That's right. That was a good point. And um, it's 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 the reason why, like, we a lot, many of us have to continue to be in these conversations and we have to we have to bridge the gaps between the people that are directly impacted by these things and those who are 
advocates and even creatives like like Jonathan. Um, one of the things that I, I did do is I tried to make sure that people within the, the new administration got to see the uh, play and experience the play. I like to say experience. <laughs> and other right. advocates and stuff and all, many like unanimously the the play changed them and I, I think when you think about um to kevin's point um the reason why we have to be engaged on different levels not just marching and protesting those are great tools but that's not going to solve this but we also have to look at things like how do we deal with our legislators? So one of the things we did do was a big push to have the city address the Wi-Fi issue in um, in, in shelters, where, yeah. which was great for families. And we now have legislation that's on the table to have Wi-Fi for all in shelters. There's so, much, so many things, but it's important to actually raise these things because sometimes they get overlooked. You have, I, I would say, hundreds of thousands of young people throughout the country who are not able to access um, the resources that, that help stabilize and make them productive. You take a place like Harlem, where I'm at, and I'm, think, I'm seeing figures that indicate that 40% of the students that are in school here are, are, in, are either homeless or, housing, or facing housing instability. And from my own experience, I'm like, wait a minute. I remember what it was like to live like that and to have to go to school and have to raise my son and all that I had to do to keep him, you know, stable and safe and all the ups and downs he had to go through despite being a bright student like I was. Mm. So these are crisis. We're in crisis mode. We've been in for years, but we have to understand it for what it is and really begin to um, push the needle, which I think we have been doing so that we can affect change in a way that is positively impactful on our uh, on our country. Absolutely, mm. which is really why we're here. I mean, you're hitting upon so many different things about what increases the risks of becoming homeless. Um, you know, Kevin mentioned um, LGBTQ plus youth are at greater risk, of course, um, indigenous and black uh, Latina youth, um, as well as just overall Black, Indigenous, and Latina people are at greater risk of homelessness. We talked about the stigma about becoming homeless, but the stigma of experiencing homelessness, it sometimes seems insurmountable. There are the obstacles that keep people housing insecure, that keep people homeless. And so I'm wondering, what are some of the policies and the resources that we can tap into to start to eradicate this problem? What keeps people housing insecure and what can we do to solve that? Speaking from the community access standpoint, uh, I mean, it's an organization that mainly provides housing to uh, people who are housing insecure. I, I think the magic of that program is actually uh, giving people a place to live. Um, and that's where it starts. Uh, that's where the stability uh, starts. They have a roof over their head and the rest of the other things they can focus on and take care of. Having that stability is what helps people uh, move forward. Yeah. Shams, what, either from your own experience or from other people that you've worked with, keeps people unhoused? 
Well, one thing is uh, obviously we are dealing with years of systemic policies and things that have negatively impacted um, people. It's tied to, in a lot of ways, the development of real estate. It's tied to redlining. It's tied to uh, policies that promote sort of uh, sustained segregation in a lot of ways. And of course, financial instability, among other things. Um, but I think I can talk from the perspective of New York City. Um, we have an ecosystem that feeds itself on what I call the homeless shelter industrial complex. And right now, what was meant to be, you know, hey, we're going to do this to fix the problem. These initiatives have only made the problem worse. So now we have nonprofits, um, we have uh, policies and different things that are done that sort of keeps us in this cycle of poverty, this cycle mm. of dependence. So remember, I was a kid. I didn't have the resources. I had potential, but that potential wasn't able to get me over the hump. And then I had children and tried to be productive in society. And it just became a never ending cycle. And so I, I only entered a shelter with my son because the city made a mistake. And when I applied for uh, public assistance, I had to apply for child support. But a clerk made the mistake of listing me as the respondent as opposed to the petitioner. So these little, that's an administrative error that caused me to pay child support for a son that I was taking care of for over 10 years. I couldn't Holy get it. Smokes. I just didn't believe that a black man was taking care of his son at that time. How this cycle, once you enter, could become a never ending cycle. That's right. From the single adult perspective, I've been in shelters that are so inhumane, that are so destabilizing, so traumatizing, that as a casual drinker, in order to cope in that environment, I became a, a drunk, if you will. <laughs> I mean, I had to drink just to get through that, that, that experience of being there. Just to block out the noise, the rapes, the robberies, the fighting, the beatings, the disrespectful uh, way in which we were treated. And this is the experience of so many people. Their drug of choice might not be alcohol. It becomes something else. And, and so my thing is we have to fix a lot of these things to make sure that people are lifted up out of poverty. When I'm in the streets, I have $250 public assistant grants. I have uh, $194 in food stamps. So I figure out a way to survive with that, right? When I enter the shelter, they take the 200 to pay the nonprofit to sleep on a cot and give me $50 to, lead, to live or in that shelter for at least two, three years. And hopefully I end up with housing. That is such a destabilizing experience and make your ability to thrive even harder. Hmm. You know, so these type of little things that we don't talk about are things that could lead a person into a perpetual cycle of needing housing or, and, and, or being homeless and like I was considered chronically homeless. Now that I'm housed, I always say, people say, oh, you're great, you're, you're housed. And I'm like, no, I'm actually housing insecure. I have to make sure that I don't miss an appointment, that I don't, you know, these things have to happen. If I accept a decent job, if, if Kevin wants to hire me or, <laughs> or Jonathan wants to hire me, our negotiation centers around shams, we're gonna pay you a decent salary.
but I can't pay you too much because I know it's going to affect your uh, your voucher. Mm-hmm. Right. And you don't want to put you in a situation where you can be homeless. Right. You have to be poor. You you can't be too poor, but you also have to be poor enough. Just going off of what Sham said, I remember in the play, one of the things that happened was Lewis's character gets a notice to show up at a hearing for some assistance, and the notice came after the date of the hearing. You know, that's something clerical and administrative that leaves him unstable and homeless for another 30 days or whenever the hearing gets rescheduled hoping that the next notice for the next hearing comes on time. I know that Shams, I was just Googling your name so anyone can find this, that you were a part of a voucher assistant program at one point and they were mailing the rental checks to the wrong landlord, right? Oh my God. Five of them. Five of them. Whoa. And so you were about to get evicted because your rent payments were supposed to be taken care of and there are just these errors. So I I want everyone to understand that there are so many different little factors that lead to that person. If you're in New York City on the subway train saying, I really need something to eat or I really need a dollar or I really need whatever it is that, you know, there's there's so little that separates us. And even if there was Mm. a lot that separates us, that that person is still worth caring about. Jams, the other thing that I was thinking about in terms of how people can help, you know, I know that you were living for a time at the Lucerne Hotel on the Upper West Side, and there was a lot of controversy around that in the neighborhood. And I was reading an article on Medium the other day that had absolutely nothing to do with homelessness, or so I thought. It was from a couple who had lived in Europe and were now living in the US that they were saying, we're living in the US for now, but probably not for long. And far down the page, it said, you know, we moved into this California neighborhood a couple of years ago, but now a homeless shelter just popped up down the street from us a few blocks and we have young children and that doesn't make us feel very comfortable. And I don't want to, fault those people and say, how dare you? But this talks again about the stigma of what it is to have a shelter in your neighborhood, to have anyone experiencing homelessness around you that, oh, having a shelter is a nice idea in theory, but please far away from me. And so I'm wondering if if you can just remark on that idea and what I think is a misconception that it's dangerous to have a shelter nearby. Well, let's be clear from the Lucerne experience. I had always, I'm just going to be real. Yes. Um, we only always. want real, but I've, I've always, I myself have complained about the conditions and the way shelters are managed. Mm. And most of these shelters are, they're just warehouses for people. So from my experience, they can become havens for criminal activity. They can become drug dens. And these, a lot of the stuff you see are not like, you're not necessarily going to worry about uh, someone accosting your child or raping you and and all of these fears or trying to kill you and stuff like that. A lot of the crimes that you see committed are perhaps crimes of poverty. Hmm. But because the shelter system is so mismanaged as of present, what we see in many cases is not a filtering process that would be able to identify 
people that might need a higher level of care. So there could been a, be, become a negative impact in any community if that doesn't happen and we're not getting people the proper help that they need. So one of the biggest things that I said, and we changed this into Lucerne because I used the community co complaints to push the shelter provider project renewal to do more in the shelter, in the Lucerne, than what would normally right. is in how they operate. So what we did was we brought harm reduction services on site. That doesn't exist in the shelter system. Mm. We brought mental health providers on site. We engaged with the community and brought in groups like Open Hearts to come and provide life skill training and other activities that would help give the, uh, the shelter residents an outlet. Uh, we also partnered with God at Riverside to bring 50 jobs where we be engaged in a greenkeepers program. And we began to change with community engagement, the mentality or the idea of what, you know, of what, or the stigmas. We began to change the stigmas to where people saw that maybe my fears weren't warranted. Because people mm. haven't lived a life, they're only going on the media portrayal. And if it had not been for the media portrayal of us and the names that they called us, they called us scum. They called us vermin. I said, whoa, I'm homeless. What I mean, scum. That's right. <laughs> if it had not been for that, I would not have spoken out because I don't want to be known for this. And I, I, had, I just wanted to get housing. But I spoke out because I said, I have to put a face to this and I'll put a real face to this. Yeah, I'm the guy that struggles with mental illness, but you don't have nothing to worry about. I am the homeless hero. I'm the guy that had a, 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 a struggle with alcohol abuse, but you know what? I'm Shams, the homeless hero. So the, the, the idea of being so transparent was also to help people understand that many of the stigmas are not based in reality. Now in the new administration, help in the new administration and including DSS to change what a shelter should look like. Because there is there a need for shelter, but we need to change what it looks like. We need to make it a safe haven for people, a temporary safe haven, not yeah. a permanent warehouse mm -hmm. for people. I couldn't have asked for a more comprehensive answer. Like you said, the media portrayal can exaggerate or can put homelessness in a single light that is very unnuanced. And no wonder someone is scared of this in their neighborhood. At the same time, the mismanagement of shelters makes that fear a real one so that the real way is to attack this from two points. First, through the storytelling, which address list does so well. And second, through the actual management and manifestation of how we run shelters. So thank you so much for that. And let me add this, if you don't mind, if we got the time. Yeah. Let me add this. Also amplifying oh, the yeah. voices of people with lived experience. Yes. That is perhaps the, the number one thing that has helped this discussion and has changed the narrative, at least in New York City for homelessness. The fact that Corinne Lowe, a do-gooder, from Open Hearts Initiative decided to say, no, Sham, I don't want to talk for you. Here, you take the mic. That right there allowed me to help change that narrative. 
in our last couple minutes, I want to go to the to the practical again. What I loved, another thing that I loved about Address List was that at the end of the show, you all gave us a sheet of how can I help, which is really what this podcast is all about. It's for all the shows that don't give you a sheet about how you can help. <laughs> um, but one of the first things on here is actually something that Covenant House does at their sleep out, which is make cards like little business cards to promote nearby shelters. So you can find out who's doing ground level homeless services in your neighborhood, find out those locations, write it down on a little card. And if you see someone, you know, with a sign homeless and needs help or whatever it is, you can give them that card so that they have a resource and Covenant House always equips us with those cards at the end of a sleep out so that we can send people towards resources. Kevin, I'm wondering what are some of the other ways practically that listeners can help those who are experiencing homelessness or policies that may be up for consideration that we should write to our representatives and advocate for? Well, right in front of us right now is probably the single most effective political strategy that's been used in two generations to reduce child poverty. And that is the child care tax credit, which mm. um, lifted millions of children in this country out of poverty and had mm. um, significant support in Congress, but is now stalled and is about to expire. And that I think goes to the point that um, I was making earlier. It, it's this failure of political will you know, this sense that we could have millions and millions of children in the country who are hungry and are without shelter and whose parents are struggling to make ends meet and are squatting or are riding all night subway cars. And that we don't consider that in our politics, a five alarm fire. That's broken, mm -hmm. it's broken. And each of us has an opportunity there to prioritize in how we exercise our right as citizens, how we vote, how we advocate, how we activate making the reduction or the elimination in child poverty a priority, just like our grandparents and great grandparents did in poor people's movements that you know, significantly reduced poverty among senior citizens in this country. It's 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 that uncomplicated and that hard to do. In terms of individual work, I, I think that this is about where people's hearts are. So there are so many opportunities to help individuals cross that bridge from homelessness to hope and opportunity. There's mentorship opportunities. There's getting involved. There's there's hiring opportunities, right? I, I always say to employers, the young people of Covenant House are the best workers you will ever have because they are hungry. They want so much to make it. So give folks who don't have um, shelter and housing an opportunity to work. And then there are opportunities to just come into you know, places like Covenant House and help young people build their skills. One of my favorite stories a few years ago, um, we were doing a tax clinic at Covenant House for young people who'd been working. They were trying to figure out, well, how do I do my taxes? And mm -hmm. one of the volunteers is a former governor of New Jersey. And I said, hey, Jason, do you know that, that this person used to be the governor of New Jersey? Jason looked at him and looked at me and said, am I getting a refund? Like, they don't really <laughs> care. They don't care about who you are. Right? They're not interested in your title. They just want the same thing the rest of us get. And that is a scaffolding 
They want to mm. be able to ascend in a scaffolding that is safe and that points upward to a horizon that's bigger than what am I having for breakfast tomorrow morning and is somebody going to rob me tonight? Really, that's that's what our young people deserve is this sense of opportunity, and we all can play a role in doing that. Some people bake birthday cakes for young people who've never had their birthdays celebrated before. Other other folks mentor young people. There are a thousand ways to activate, depending on what people's comfort level is. Right. Mm. And we will put some more of those suggestions in the show notes, absolutely, because that is the whole part of this podcast is to give you the little things and the big things that you can do to help change the world in this way. Shams, did you want to add something? No, I appreciate Kevin so much because, you know, I, I've been, as, a, as the homeless hero, I've been talking so much about, you know, my experience from this as a single adult experiencing homelessness, but I spent so many years as, as a child, like when he said th- things about the cake and, and it's just mm. like, it's just, Boom. Yeah. If we do the right thing, let's put the positive on it. Then you don't have to have Shams being a single adult in the, in the, in the shelter system. And you don't have to have this burden. Right. Let's do this now. Let's address. Because who can be more vulnerable than a child? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Stop it from the start. Stop it from the start. And we don't have to deal with this 10 and 20 years from now. If we have programs that are teaching how to fill out taxes and how to balance a budget and how you can uh, access wealth without having to become a drug dealer or engage in criminal activity, we can do so much or have, how to not get caught up in human trafficking. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I am living proof of that. I was adopted at birth and I didn't know my siblings. We were all separated. And I've recently met them now. And to hear how different our stories are is confounding. I am able to be where I am today because just by some chance miracle, my foster mother adopted me and did everything she could to make sure that all my needs were met and that I didn't have to worry or stress about the next day. I had that comfort. And I hear what my siblings tell me, and it is like night and day where they are now and where I am. They've, you know, they've reached stability, thank God, and they are doing well, but the comparisons of our our childhood is uh, deathly striking. Well, and that their success is against odds, not with them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's the other layer. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for being here for all of your extra time and your expertise. Thank you. Thanks, Ruthie. Yeah. Thanks for bringing attention and time to this. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them 
and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.